It's the Manly Danger Show with your hosts, Chet Manley and Max Danger. Chet and Max are on assignment doing something manly and dangerous. Today's special guest hosts are Jack Field and Matthew Thornton. And now, here's Matthew and Jack. Hey, it's Jack Heald here, sitting wait, wait, in for wait, wait. Matthew. Oh, and I didn't ask the most important question. Am I allowed to swear? Yes, it's a podcast. Okay, just want to make sure. Go ahead, start again. I'm sorry. You're welcome. Wait, wait, this, wait. Is, <laughs> this is Jack Heald and Matthew Thornton sitting in for Chet and Max, who are on assignment somewhere in the world doing something dangerous. Um, so welcome to the Manly Danger Show. I'm Jack Heald, and you are... Matthew. Hello. So, uh, what do you think of today, dude? Uh, this is the first time that we've done a video like part of this, and I, I, it's freaking me out. I okay. think I'm going to pretend like I can't see it. I'm going to put something over it. I, I, love, I love your background, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, um, it's the, I'm, I'm actually in front of a green screen. And oh I yeah, got, I thought so. It's seriously it. cool. It looks like a closet or, or a, a really yeah, crowded office. Yeah. yeah, I got horribly disorganized office as my uh, backdrop. <laughs> it's a download from uh, awfulbackdrops.org. Sounds like a spectacular idea. So, um, the rumor that I heard is that you're actually hung over today. That's not a rumor. It's uh, is it? I'm, I usually am. I mean, not usually. Like, I've been getting better lately, but uh, yeah, today I am for sure. Well, when you say better, are you better at being hungover or better hangovers? Or I, I don't understand what you're telling me. <laughs> Probably both. Yeah, I've been kind of managing my my booze lately pretty well. But uh, not is that yesterday. like gun control? Gun control is hitting what you aim at. Well. Mostly it's just, it goes back to that first time that we were talking about um, the drunk driving license. So when I'm driving, I always keep it under control. And it's, um, when I don't have to drive, though, it just uh, buckle up. It, it, it can get, it can get pretty fun. Well, <laughs> it keeps me young. Yeah. Well, we've got a, uh, so I figured since we're guest hosting, we could have guest guests. So I have, uh, I love the idea, especially cause we, I think we've run out of things to talk about, haven't we? Oh, oh yeah. That totally happens. Right. Yeah. You and I never have anything to talk about. So because no, we've exhausted all the subjects, other. right. I've invited, uh, I've invited a very special guest onto the show today. Uh, Max and Chet can't do anything about it. Uh, let's welcome to the Manly Danger Hour, my friend, Jim Nicholson. This is where if I had a soundtrack, I would press the, the you soundtrack. You don't have the applause. I don't, I don't have the applause. Maybe I can put it in in post-production. Hey, Jim. Welcome, Hi, to the, hey welcome to the Manly Danger Hour, or show. I can't remember what they call it. Well, it's never been quite an hour, has it? It's always either been a little longer or a little shorter, so let's That's just true. the show. That's true. We'll go with show. <laughs> so, uh, introduce yourself to our, our vast listening audience, Jim. Vast listening audience. Um, I'm a guy. Uh, I live in the greater Portland metropolitan area, Portland, Oregon. Um, despite that, I am not a vegan, uh, nor am I transsexual. <laughs> um, uh, I have a cat. I have a wife. I have an older daughter who lives with me. And uh, why did you list them in that order? Um, because the cat is the most <laughs> likely to bite me while I'm having this conversation. Oh, <laughs> I have, my cat is an asshole. That I have the official asshole cat. If you look up asshole cats on Wikipedia, that there's a picture of, of my cat. They're all. No, my cat is a real asshole. My cat is. A, he's the cat you can't pet. I don't know if you know this, but cats are not a domesticable breed. No, I don't. Like well, species. neither was my first wife. 
She kept shitting on the furniture. No, oh, that's the least of the problems. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> so, cats, what's the name of that? Did we ever figure out the name of that parasite that gets into cat poop? Yeah. There we go. Toxoplaxemia. Plaxemia. Oh, like yeah, that. I have that for sure. Well, actually, it's like a third of, of humans have it for sure. I have yeah. that, but like with badgers. <laughs> you know, if you if if you're if you're bitten enough by a badger, you begin to have an affinity for badgers, and so that explains. What does it explain a, exactly? A huge gap in my life, actually, <laughs> that I can't account for otherwise. But my theory is that if it's uh, if it if if it was anything, it had to have been badgers. We're what? five minutes in, and I'm barely hanging on. <laughs> I have no idea what, what badgers uh, have to do with any of this. I'm lost as hell. Okay, toxoplaxemia. Is, is, is that right? Am I saying that right? I have no idea. It's the parasite that only re, is only able to reproduce inside the intestines of cats. So in yeah. order to 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 spread its seed across the world, it has there's there's a theory that is apparently backed up with some pretty decent research that cats make themselves um, uh, they treat humans in such a way that the humans will help the cats, which helps the 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 parasites because humans will clean up the 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 feces from the cat, which gets it into us, apparently, although the only people that it's dangerous to is pregnant women, they think. Um, or maybe it's us that it's dangerous to, and it's not dangerous to cats. I don't know, whatever it is. There's a theory that humanity and delinity all exist purely for the purpose of, of propagating the world with this toxoplexemia bug, that we're, we're actually like the third most intelligent species on the planet. Just, yeah, as, Douglas, just as Douglas Adams no. predicted. If you're going to measure intelligence, I wouldn't put the people at the top that their only real estate is cat intestines. Like, don't you think if they were really the most intelligent, they would maybe get out of there and move into a nice beachside <laughs> Sort of thing. like you wouldn't just go like we're so smart that we're gonna no we don't need to live anywhere else yeah. we need to live in cat intestines that's not the top of the totem pole I mean well, unless your your matrix of of well, judging intelligence I mean, is different think about, think about a cat intestine for a minute a cat intestine is warm it's wet and um, when you need to get around cats have been well known to throw their feces around. So, <laughs> why did I bring this up? Um, I, do, I don't know. Probably because you don't own a badger. Probably because you, you I haven't eaten breakfast yet. And you, uh, wait, what? What? <laughs> do, where do badgers come into this? It's just, it's just random. It really is. It's just random. Oh. <sighs> okay. I so, I don't have any badgers. I'm going to I'm going to go to the emergency um, podcast topics list and and bring up something that maybe we can discuss. There's one driving I, this thing completely off the rails. That, before you do that, I'd like to yes. make a comment. Uh, having well, listened to the do. first two episodes I, yes. and enjoyed them thoroughly, yes. um, but, but there's a thing I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. Um, he uh, a guy by the name of Joe Frank, who uh, runs a radio. He, he, he runs a radio program, or he he passed away earlier this year. But he used to run a radio program out of out of uh, uh, San Francisco, um, and he he's a former NPR announcer, and he basically does kind of like a a a, a less cool kind of word jazz program where he basically does improvisational radio. Um, kind of like what, what, what podcasts are, but before there were podcasts, he was doing this on the radio. And he would do things like there, he did a whole series of shows where from the West Coast, he called up all of his old girlfriends in New York after midnight and talked to them and then had them sing a song with him. 
and and these poor women were actually on the air while he was doing this. Um, but but one of the things he does that's really cool on a lot of his stuff is he has background music while I'm he's wondering talking. if we should be talking about badgers instead. Anyway, so, carry on, carry on. So this there was so there was this there was this there's this moment when I'm listening to your podcasts where I'm thinking these guys would sound so much better if there was just some sort of like down tempo electronica playing softly in the background oh. while they're doing this, you know, just a little, just a little like kind of a mood music. And then when you reach those lulls, you could just like raise the level a little bit and have it like be like a little musical bullet break. And then you can pin it back down when you start talking. A little down tempo electronica. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Can you add on that? Post? We'll get that. We'll put that in post-production. Yeah. The best thing about podcasts is that it's, it's, May well, maybe that it's not live. I don't know. I okay, like the so, fact that you don't have to do them. That's also a good thing. That's the best part. You know, I did a radio podcast. show every Saturday for oh, for quite some time. I got up at oh dark thirty and drove from the southeast valley to the northeast valley um, to do this radio show. Um, and I mean, it was a lot of fun. I, I won't pretend that it wasn't a lot of fun to to run my mouth. But gosh, it's really nice that doing it this way, we can just say, "Hey, when do you want to record this thing?" and it, and we can record it whenever we want. So yeah, oh, I do no, like that. This is why Rush Limbaugh has a studio in his house. Exactly. All right. So here's this here's this idea I want to throw out for the for the assembled masses to discuss. So I have this idea about God or the idea of God. I have an idea about the idea of God, which is, which is that it, it goes back to Carl Rogers saying that, that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people that ideas predate people that ideas will inhabit a person and sometimes take over possession of a person that the goal of an idea is is to stay alive, Ooh, excuse me, and that ideas outlast people. And and if we think about that as the definition of an idea, something that has been around before us, that inhabits us and will be around after we're gone, that sounds like we're describing some sort of a deity. You with me so far? Does that yeah, make sense? I'm loving it. So my idea is that is that what happens is that one of these ideas um tends to get a hold of a person and that idea for all intents and purposes takes the place fills the place that we typically say is where is is god and with that definition the only people who are actually atheists are people who are not ideologically possessed in any way, shape, or form. And I would be inclined to think, I haven't thought this through a lot. <clears throat> oh, I, should, I should back up one step. So even if you claim to not believe in God, if you have some big idea that predates you, that possesses you, and that's going to, to outlast you, the chances are pretty good that, that there is a deity you are serving, that, 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 that the deity is that idea whatever it happens to be. And the only way to get free of those things is often it is to kill them. There are some ideas that no longer have any currency, that no longer have any power. Um, now, interestingly enough, Terry Pratchett explored this idea in his ring in his Discworld series of, of books, um, where he has these various little gods that when people stop believing in them, they lose their power. And there's the world is peopled with all these extraordinarily minor gods with very little ability and very little power and who, who have been weakened simply because people no longer believe in them. And when the last person ceases to believe in one of these deities, it ceases to exist. Discuss. It's the same <clears throat> idea that uh, his friend Neil Gamian uses in American Gods, right? It's... Yeah, it's it is. It's the, the same divine, idea as in American Gods. Divine powers is is based upon how much belief there is in it. But back to your earlier statement, though, it's it's certainly true that um, 
that atheism is one of those things that functions as a, as a religion or a belief system in people who, who espouse it. I mean, it's also true of like, there's other, other things like that. Like some people have criticized the environmental movement and said that environmentalism has essentially, has essentially religious overtones. It essentially occupies the space in a person's brain for those who are obsessed or, 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 or compulsive about it. it. It occupies the space in the brain that, that a, a religious belief used to occupy for people. Well, it's an interesting thing you brought up, environmentalism. I've thought for a long time that the environmentalist kind of reminds me of, you know, back in prehistory when when there was a tornado or a you know, flood or whatever it was. It was that God is punishing us. But when you when you don't believe in God you kind of become God and then we're punishing ourselves. So whoever it is, you're blaming your creator. So now all those people are blaming humans because right. they think that they're their own creators. Yeah. It's the, they, they never really seem to be able to answer the question. They, they, they all have a very distinct idea that we should be taking care of the planet, but they don't really have a really good rationale for why other than, well, it's the only planet we've got. Well, there are lots of planets out there. Why don't we spend our efforts trying to get to them? Well, the common the common theme is um, why are there floods and tornadoes? And in human history, the common response has been probably because of something we did. Whether it's God punishing us or the gods punishing us or the... That's a really interesting observation. It's not... We haven't really changed in terms of how we perceive ourselves. We just point the finger at ourselves differently, but it's always probably because of of something you did. That's like, you know. um, That's a really interesting insight. I hadn't thought of that before. I know you guys have talked about uh, Tlaib before, uh, uh, Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. Um, Have either of you read the earlier book of his called Fooled by Randomness? No, all I've, the only one of his. Well, I would, I would, I would recommend it. Is, is uh, Black Swan. Well, so one of the things that he talks about in Fooled by Randomness is how there seems to be within the human psychic structure um, a, 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 a capacity that insists upon assigning purpose and, and direction and causality to things that actually occur as a result of basically randomness. And right. part of the argument of the book is like, you know, basically what, one of the things he says, and I'm oversimplifying the argument, but it basically says like that the, the one characteristic thing about traders who are successful on Wall Street is that all of the traders who are successful on Wall Street are traders who are successful on Wall Street. Right. You know, that's the only thing that's really true about them, because if you look at any if you try to look at them and you try to analyze all their characteristics and all their behaviors, the problem with that analysis is no matter what you come up with as, well, this is the thing, or these are the things that make them great traders. The reality of it is you will find negative examples of people who do exactly those things and fall flat on their face. Right. And, and the only thing he actually says in the book that makes it, that actually makes a trader a good trader is that good traders quit before they lose more than they can afford to lose. Yeah. So they're well, as as an ex trader who is no longer a trader because I wasn't a good trader. I can attest to the truth. <laughs> but <clears throat> but I, but but I mean this 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 whole idea that I'm I'm in in part of the book I think he discusses like that essentially the human brain is a is a is a incredibly powerful pattern recognition tool. Well, yeah, we're a pattern recognition machine. And and part of what's going on in a lot of the modern kind of quasi-religious things, and I think you can say the same thing about some aspects of our current political system on both sides of the, the spectrum in countries like the U.S. where there are two sides, and in other countries there are lots of sides, and it, it, it functions even more blatantly in those, I think. But it's that that we're, we try to ascribe some sort of, it, we try to simplify and, 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 and fit things into a pattern. And the reality of it is, it's just like, you know, it's, if D- Donald Trump is not there a nice are, person. There are no patterns, right. But, but, but he's not, he's not, 
He's also not Hitler. Hillary Clinton is probably not a good person to be president, but she's got to where she got in the government. So she must have some skills, you know, That's why I, I used to say this back when, uh, during the previous administration, I would, cause I have arguments with people on both sides being a, a spooner, right? I, you know, basically I'm a contrarian and, and one of the things that I kept saying is like, look, guys, you think George W. Bush was an idiot? He got to be president of the United States. You're a fucking truck driver. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. You know? Give the guy some credit. He, he may not be the brightest light bulb in the box, but he's certainly in the top five. You know, <laughs> well, he was smart enough to have been born into a, a family dynasty. Well, and that, I mean, that, there's that aspect. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only reason he was president. The same, but the same thing would be true of Barack Obama. You know, you can yeah. you can dislike Barack Obama's politics, you can dislike his methodologies, you can dislike a lot of things about him. Barack Obama's not an idiot. You you can't accuse these people of being dumb. I don't remember the last president. I don't think there's ever been a president of the United States that we could accuse of being dumb. Yeah, Ulysses, Jimmy, Car- Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter wasn't. Well, with Carter, I would say there's a difference between there's a difference between um, naivety that blinds you and actual ignorance. I think that Carter Carter fell into the situation where he had specific preconceived notions about how the world was built, and it it made him it made it impossible for him to see things that were obvious to people around him and, and people who grew up and, and lived. I mean, my teenage years were spent in the Carter preg- presidency and it was hell. <laughs> Even those of us who didn't vote for Reagan were happy when he came, became president. <laughs> right. Oh, I remember that well. So I want to go back to this idea that, that you, that you pause that, that Taleb talks about that the human brain seems to, to be, have a tendency toward um, finding something to to venerate to worship well it's it's um, it's that it's that it's that there must whatever something happens there must be a reason why it happened right it can't just have happened right okay and, i mean that- from your own background as an evangelical christian how many times when you were growing up did you hear it didn't just happen yeah there had to be a purpose Yes, I was raised in a Calvinist tradition. What I heard over and over again was, "God's God has a purpose for everything that happens to you." Really? You know, yesterday I got out of the house, got to the train station, looked down, and realized I was wearing one sandal and one shoe. That was God. Yeah. Are you seriously? Did yes. that happen? Yes, I actually that actually happened to me. That's what happens when you're old. That's amazing. Yep. Or you're in a hurry and you're dressing in the dark. <laughs> well, that's that's the whole the old uh, saying: everything happens for a reason. Right. Right. And, and the, no, and the, it it doesn't. It does. In retrospect, it's like a, you're you know you have you have five different attorneys looking at the same fact of a murder, and the first one goes. And he says, this is what happened. And it's obvious that he walked in the room and grabbed the knife. And that's why the body was over there. And then the next lawyer comes and you go, that's pretty convincing. And then the next lawyer comes up and says, no, it might've been that he went over here and then his roommate came home. And then that that's who actually killed the person. And that's totally plausible too. And you go, oh yeah, that all makes sense too. So everything makes sense in the past because you can just put it into whatever well, that's another one. You want. Yeah, and that's another thing that Talib brings up in the book too. Is that if everything happens for a reason, you would be able to predict. It's a lot easier to. It's a lot easier to 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 use. Hindsight's better. Hindsight's always more accurate, right? Oh, I think that's total nonsense. I think hindsight is whatever you want it to be. That's why I was well, just saying. You, any different theory about the past can fit. Right. Well, that's what. Way. That's what. That's what I meant. Is that. Is that. You, you, you're, you're, you, you, you can look at where you are and look at how you got there and you'll see a pattern and a path. And the fact of the matter is that when you were going through the path, when you were traversing it, you had no real idea and there wasn't anything other than just the random movements that you were taking. 
It's, yeah, it's, I think you're, that's... You're, you're pushing a pattern onto it. That's what hindsight is, basically. It's, hindsight is essentially forcing... forcing. It's, it's basically Bobcat Goldway, right? Remember the old Bobcat Goldway movies where he falls down the stairs, and when he gets to the bottom, every time he hits a stair, and he, he, he says, I meant to do that. I wow. meant to do that. <laughs> It's that. That's 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 the model that a lot of people work with. Yeah, that- I, I think it's wildly inaccurate, and it, it usually is not true. And it's a uh, that's why memories are one of the least trustworthy things that that are around human the human memory. That you like, you don't remember anything accurately. And um, well, but but as I understand it, the, the, you know, recent research indicates that that. That there, there is a reason why our our memory is not a video recorder. Our memory, the 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 evolutionary usefulness of memory is not to take an accurate snapshot of the past. It is to to guide us in decision making in the future. I think. And so so we we remember things in in a way that. If something similar, if we encounter something similar in the future, we've got this this mental pattern that we can refer to. I think most of it is not that. I think it's 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 a defense of how awesome we are to ourselves because we're in love with ourselves and our whole life, ev- everything that we remember is about how great we are and and how. Or, or how we're justified in being a piece of shit or whatever it is. It's, we're our own attorney. We're our own attorney and being like, no, he only did that because so-and-so did this. And that's why we remember the guy that did the thing. And, and then that made us do this. And we're, because we're crazy in love with ourselves or we're defending ourselves for how horrible we are. And that's why we remember what we remember. Well, have you have you looked at um, um, this? Leads into the I, the thoughts of Jonathan Haidt in the Righteous Mind about how the um, how the reasoning facility evolves in people, and and he's done some some empirical testing that essentially is try, establishes that most people react in most situations where people think they are making a rational decision about something. It, they are actually making a, a, a non-rational, non-volitional reaction. And then what happens is the reasoning part of their brain kicks in to sort of rationalize what they've done and, course, and yeah. reinforce that behavior. And one of the, and I'm, again, I'm really simplifying hates, um, uh, uh, his theory here, but one of the things he postulates is that the the purpose for this is to reinforce the behaviors that work. So you, you, you make a snap judgment. I'm not going to eat that plant. I'm going to eat this plant over here. And in your brain, there's, there's, there's a, a reasoning facility that tries to come up with a rationalization for why you were attracted to the yellow plant and not the, not the red one. Right. And then what happens is, is that, you come up with that rationalization and you think that's why you picked the yellow one. You didn't pick the yellow one because of that. You picked it because it's wired into you to go to prefer yellow over, over red for some bizarre evolutionary reason that has nothing to do with, 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 with reason. But the fact that you have a rational brain, a rational piece of your brain that justifies your decision and makes you think, Oh yes, as a sentient being, I made that choice. That actually is an evolutionary adaptation that helps reinforce you to keep making the right choices and keeps you from going back and saying, well, maybe I should eat the red one. Right. The red one's going to kill you, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, that's, you know, as, as somebody who's, who's primarily involved in the, the field of marketing for, for lack of a, uh, I'm not going to get any more specific than that right now. That's pretty well known stuff that nobody makes decisions for rational reasons. You make your decisions are emotional. Your decisions are instinctive. Your decisions are intuitive. Your justification for your decisions are the things that are rational. And that goes back to this pattern recognition stuff we were talking about. You do something for whatever reason 
and then retrospectively you apply a a um, a matrix to it to to explain the decision making process that yeah. led you to that point and it's complete bullshit because that's not what you did um but it sounds good it it sounds good hate uses a really good analogy he talks about the the elephant and the driver um and you know his in his analogy he says that the the guys who the guys who basically ride elephants around don't ride an ele- you don't ride an elephant the way that you ride a horse where you just, you know, you jerk the rein and the horse goes this way, you jerk the rein, you're directing the horse. With an elephant, you don't direct the horse, you encourage the, 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 the elephant, you encourage the elephant. You reinforce the things. And so what he says is if you want to convince a person, along the lines of what you were just talking about, Jack, if you want to convince a person, you, you have to talk to their elephant and not to their rider. Yes. Because their elephant is the part that actually, the, 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 the rider's going to lean whichever way the elephant goes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And as, and as somebody who's, who's in the business of persuasion, I spend most of my time thinking about how to craft messages that appeal to the elephant, knowing that, knowing that the writer is going to come along in whatever direction the elephant goes. Right. Yep. What's fascinating, Matthew, is you work in the, you work in a field where, where, Everybody is accepts the reality of the elephant when they're at a concert. Matthew's a Matthew's a professional musician. Well, everybody checks the the rider at the door. They check the rider at the door. That's right. It's all elephants. That's it. And it's fascinating because we can see in those kind of environments everything that makes up a religious experience. You will see in an effective rock concert. You will see this ritualistic behavior that's, that's conducted. Um, by the way, my, can you tell how soundproof my studio is? I hope you didn't hear that. It's just, it's not, it's like, it's like Grand Central Station. I think your microwave burrito is ready, by the way. (laughs) Um, but, but even, you know, the hardest core of hardcore atheists will show up at a rock concert and behave in an utterly in a way that that if all you were doing was observing their behavior would be almost identical to a um, Pentecostal worship service. Well, and the, the confluence is, is the converse is also true, right? I mean, when we were on and you and I were on BHT, one of the things that topics that frequently came up was the style of worship that took place inside of Protestant churches and how the style of worship was moving away from the traditional structured liturgy with hymns and a a homily and all that into this kind of like loose sort of experiential thing. And uh, frankly, toward the end of my time in that tradition, um, the churches that I were attending to were indistinguishable from rock concerts on Sunday mornings. Oh yeah. There was a guy who got up and he led and, and, and the, you know, we, they play an up tempo, upbeat music and there's all pretty people on the stage and me, but there's all pretty people. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then everybody gets up and sings along, you know, we all get to our feet and we stand up there. Um, right. It's uh, it, 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 so it, it, it cuts both ways. The only, the only exception to, the observation that Matthew made that I'm aware of is a rush concert because most of the people who are there are there for their driver, not for their, not for their elephant because the music's just too damn complicated. Oh, so true. So true. But, 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 but think about that because, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making a joke here, but I'm, and I, cause you know, my style of music, Jack, and you know, the, the things I've gone through and, and when I play the guitar, what I play and things like that. Uh, by the way, Matthew, I'm, I, I was trained as a classical guitarist before I got into the IT field. So I, oh. I know a little bit of the world you're in, although I, I made a conscious decision not to go that way at some point, uh, probably to the detriment of my um, uh, my inner child. Mental health, yes. Mental health, yeah. But in, but in any event... Um, and certainly to the mental health but, of, those, of those who are tasked with managing you. But if I chart, if I chart the kinds of music that I listen to, I was, you know, obviously my my mother was a piano teacher. I was raised in a in a very conservative home. 
I was exposed to a lot of classical music, and I was interested in classical music as a child and as a teenager. When I became exposed to rock music, the rock music that I got exposed to and the, the, the thing that I really got interested in, it's funny because I had a, a guitar teacher who was an avid blues fan, and he, he exposed me to a lot of, of old-style blues music. But I never really liked it that much back then. Now I look go back and I say, man, I'm really glad I learned all that stuff. But the truth of the matter is the people that I liked were Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Yes, yes. and early Gosh. Genesis. It was the yes. prog rock stuff that now everybody looks at and they say, God, that was self-indulgent nonsense. But, just, but back then it was just like – Just tell me you weren't a Jethro Tull fan. I actually liked Jethro Tull. I wasn't a oh, fan. Oh, God. But but again, every was, time Jethro Tull comes on, every time Aqualung com, comes on the radio, I I'm just. But it was. But, but I, I mean, tried was, to like it. I really did, and I risky I, to listen to the radio. Isn't it? I I couldn't get the yeah exactly. But I mean, if you compare like the structure of a piece of music like Close to the Edge, with the structure of a Wagner symphony, I'm not saying they're identical, but there are elements there that all they all all the same kinds of elements are at work in that music. And if you've got a mind that's trying to make your driver work with work in music and not just be about the emotional side of it, there's a real appeal to that kind of music. I understand what it, what it means now. I don't necessarily like it as much. It's not as much fun now that I'm old and slow and my brain doesn't work as fast, but. So Matthew, can you you imagine Jim's brain working slower than it does right now? (laughs) Yeah. I just watched a, a Robin Williams documentary. Oh my god! <laughs> so, well, I was on speed for a long time what, when they first met Jack. So, what's an interesting thing about music is what people use it for and and why they like it. And I think, like most people, they don't think about why they just like what they like and don't like what they don't like, and that's that's the end of it. But what is what is your take on what music is? doing like people that people that like prog rock because it's complicated or the theory or it's harder than four chords and you know like a rock song or whatever mm-hmm. um i never really understood why you would like it because it's something that's just the el- it's for the elephant it's a why are you trying to think about it and go like, well, they did this key change here. And then they did like Steely Dan or something like, and they had some uh, e- they had easy, some easy stuff. now with criticizing Steely Dan. I know one of my, um, I, one I, of I, my, a lot of my best friends love that band. Well, and I, and I don't understand why, because, because it's not awesome. That, so, so this is what I was just to you about that. To, 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 to settle this right away, there's a YouTube video settle that we this? can find. Wait, yes, it's oh, actually it's actually. Oh, no, you can't you can't we settle are, something by sending us. Settling this now. No, I want, I want, but I want you to follow me in this. There's a YouTube video where where uh, Donald Fagan actually explains the process by which he came up with the with the chord patterns for the song Peg. Oh, I've I've seen that. Yeah. And 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 the thing about as I was watching it. What I was thinking was, I never would have thought through all this. I never, you know, like he, he's, he's yeah. moving from the, the minor, the, the blues minor to the relative major. And he's, he's you know, he's, he's keeping the voicings like this. And he's, you know, he's all, all using stacked force and all that stuff. I never would have thought through it that way. Even if, I, even if I had known that stuff back when that song was popular and on the radio, I never would have thought about it. Yeah. But. What he says makes perfect sense to why I liked that song when it was on the radio. Did it make it better knowing that? I don't think it had any effect on it. I think it just, it, it just, I think what it, what it, what it speaks to is that there's a part of that process in some people that's, that needs to be engaged. There are some people who they, they, they need their driver to be engaged when they're on, when, when they're in this. I never was one of those people who actually enjoyed, I never liked where my elephant took me. And that's one of the reasons why I was why I was, that's another bad one. elephant. Well, maybe or maybe I just didn't like my elephant very much. That was the, I, I that think was that part. was it. I think you didn't like your elephant. Yeah, yeah. Well, like because elephant? my elephant was constantly leading me in directions that my parents were telling my parents and my peers were telling me were bad. 
Mm. And so you rejected your elephant rather than saying to the rest of the world, hey, my elephant is my elephant. Hey, not to put too fine a point on it here, but I actually became a blackout drinker because I didn't like my elephant. I, it was that bad. And it's a, it's not just about music. There was other aspects of me that I didn't, I really wow. didn't like. We went and I, dark I would drink to the place where, where I would, I would pass out and not remember what I had done for 12 or 14 hours. Um, and, and, what and is it, what is it about ourselves? This is something that we talked about last time with consciousness. Yeah. What, is it about ourselves that we think that we are something like separate from what we do? There's something very suspicious going on here because you aren't, you know, like the people that go like, I'm going to go to Peru and find myself and they never do. They're still a miserable little shit when they get back, but, or they had a nice time and they got tan and that's, you know, that's what pretty much everybody's about is, get out into nature and get grounded and get a, get a suntan and, uh, you know, look at the stars or whatever. That's cool. But what is it about thinking of ourselves? Like who, who am I? And who is it that's asking the question, who am I? And, and of whom is it asking that question? It's as well, if yeah, there are but multiple like, eyes at like work if, here. Like you're, your elephant, you don't like your elephant. Um, I kind of get that, but. And who is it that's doing the not liking of the elephant? It's just behavior, isn't it? You aren't, you aren't some, uh, you know, some being that's like got all these traits and slick, all this stuff. It's just, you've got some preferences you know, I like, I don't like mushrooms. I kind of do now though, but like, well, what the, that, it's behavior. That's, you think it's pure you behavior? Are, you are what you do. I, I think it, our, our brains are, are really complicated things. And Jack has heard this story before, but when I was a kid, oh, 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 don't go, don't go running down that path too quick. So Matthew's, Matthew's assertion is that you are what you do. Right? Yeah, like, like, okay, so so who well, you I'm, are deep down matters to one person. You. That's it. No one else cares, and nor should they. And should you care? Well, I, but, but, I've come so, to the realization lately that I don't care who I am at all. I'm not interested in it. If you want to know who I am, like deep down, you can try to you know figure it out or ask my friend. You, what? So what you say is is that. Everybody else only cares what you do. Right. Yeah. They care about your behavior. And that's what you should care about too. And that's what you should care about too. You sh- I mean, we who, could, we could drill deep into that. Like well, who, then you're you, the- who you are, like deep down is like, does that matter? There you go. Does that matter? Does, does, does the things that you contemplate about yourself that are not expressed in behavior mean anything at all? That's a good question. What sucks is once you realize that, you start to have a really healthy love of yourself. And then you don't want to lose that part of your ego because you feel like you've been you've made some progress with it and you don't want to just be reconnected with the, the uh, all of consciousness in a, in a selfless way. Okay. I'm, I'm, I lost you there. Did drill into that a little deeper. So like when people do DMT, they have this sense of like, they, they're, they're dying or their, their, their ego is gone. It starts to, you, you lose that, lose that, lose that. And then you're just part of the, fabric of the consciousness or the source, you know, whatever, or the, or yeah. Um, and I think that I, I have a lot of fear of that because I like myself. Right. I like being whatever this is. I don't know who that is and I'm not interested in it, but I'm enjoying it. And I don't want to lose that by 
by going so back to this selfless, weird, like. Okay. Okay. But I, 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 I'm with you. I'm, I, I get you. I completely get that. But I still have the question. So who is it that's doing the liking and who is it that doesn't want to go back? Yeah, exactly. Who cares? Your answer is who cares? Okay. Well, I, no, I, I, I can live with that. I, as this, whatever this is, this connection to this physical, you know, body or whatever, um, whatever it is that I'm inhabiting at the moment is really fun. And I think it would be weird if I lost that to just join the rest of the idiots that are shopping at Walmart or whatever. So that, that brings up an interesting idea for me. And, and what you're saying is that (laughs) if I, if I'm, if I'm with you and I think I am this whole idea of ego death of, of losing your sense of separateness from the rest of the cosmos, you're not in favor of that. And the reason very well might be because when you are one with the cosmos, you have no limitations. And it is in fact our limitations that, that give us the ability to, to experience life in a, in a way that is enjoyable. Absolutely. Um, uh, I was, somebody made the point that, that Superman, when he was first invented back in the thirties, could, he was faster than a speeding built bullet and able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And over the decades, he gained more and more power to the point there that he fun. literally could do anything in the world. There was, he had no limitations. He had to have the kryptonite. The fewer limitations yeah. he had, the, the, the less interesting yeah. he became. And it, it, is, just... it is, in fact, our, our limitations that, I mean, maybe one way to say it, and this is, idea is not, is not original with me. Maybe it is our limitations that make us human. And well, certainly and, there are limitations that make us interesting, right? That's, that's even the basics, basis of fiction writing. Yeah. I mean, you don't create a, you don't create a flawless character because your book will be boring. Right. Right. <laughs> and stories with the, those just so stories where, and then a miracle happened and everything was solved right. are incredibly unsatisfying, which is kind of odd because we, we all seem to have this visceral urge toward happy endings. Yeah, but we know that that's not real unless it's, you know, unless you pay extra. Thank you. I was hoping that's, somebody, I was hoping yeah, somebody would you're get welcome. it. But <laughs> it's, you know, it's not real. It's not, it's not compelling. The elephant knows that that's BS. It's got a really good BS detector. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that, that, that it is in fact our limitations that give, I'm going to fall back on Jordan Peterson here. It is the fact that we have limitations that give us the ability to seek meaning in our lives. And without meaning in our lives, we don't see any point in being alive. I mean, those who veer over into nihilism well, I've, often become not only self-destructive, but, but homicidal and even genocidal. I've explained this to you I think before that reading people's accounts of out of body experiences and stuff and I think now more people coming around with with like ayahuasca and DMT and stuff like that those experiences are really interesting to read about Um, it seems like our current experience with these with these bodies that you know being sort of attached to them or however, however we're attached to them, but um, we can only see a certain fraction of light. We can only right. hear a certain fraction of this sound waves or whatever. Right. There's so much that we can't do. And that kind of makes <coughs> human. Um, what happens when we're in these bodies is somewhat like experiencing the, the universe under a colander. Like you can see little points of it, but you can't put the, put the whole picture together. And when you do DMT, you take the colander off or when you have a near-death experience, that's gone and you're completely out of your world. Like you're, you're, but when you, when you're kind of reconnected and, and limited by your brain 
you're back to the colander. Like you're looking at the world through just a couple of holes. And part of the fun is to figure out how to blow those up a little bit and try to find something that other people can't see, which is why um, songwriting has, has done that for me where I don't write them. I just figure out how to blow up one of those holes for a few minutes and then it'll close again. And then I have to do it to try to do it again. But there's a, an interaction with that other rest of the world or dimensions or whatever it is that's out there that is, that's really fun. But if you're just doing it, it wouldn't be fun. If you could, ju- if everybody could do it, or if, um, if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. It would, it would be just you know, like, every, you know, everybody can do it. And that's what you do. Like everybody can write all the songs that I can write because they can see it. It's, it's just plain. So the limitation makes it all really fun. I've experienced that same thing when, um, you know, when I was in school, I got a music composition degree. And we would usually get an assignment. Um, you know, one of the things I remember very clearly was go write a string quartet in a sonata form. So my instruments were defined and the form of the composition was defined. And, and, uh, you know, string instruments are, are fairly, uh, agile and able to play almost anything down to their lower range. Uh, but the sonata form is very strict. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could, I could write any music that a, a string quartet could, could play. So I could pick two violins, a viola and a cello, or, um, maybe throw a, a string bass in there instead of one of the violins. Um, and it had to be in the sonata format. And the, the fascinating thing, I think anybody who's involved in creative work knows this. When, with, when you set those limits, that's when the creativity really starts to, starts to boil, starts to explode. The most difficult assignments I ever had from the standpoint of trying to come up with something creative was at the end of my senior year when I was supposed to be putting together my, my uh, final project, which was a one hour concert of my stuff. There were very few limitations. It was just, Hey, you've got to come up with an hour's worth of music. Without those limitations, there was, it was very difficult to come up with creative ideas. Um, yeah. So there's this, there's this, there's this weird thing here that I'm, I'm, that I sense there, I sense there's something big here. This, that, this li- I, importance of limitation, the importance of limited sight, the importance of, of having, of, of being the, the writer on the elephant or being the elephant, well, not caring about the writer. I don't know. It seems like it's all connected and I can't make sense of it. So I've had a similar experience with music. Um, to really briefly summarize, I was involved in the eighties in a, a, a bunch of uh, bands and part of what I was doing, most of what I was doing during that period was like basically guitar and keyboards for, for some band. And this was during the time when MIDI and synthesizers were beginning to come right. to become a big thing. And of course I had a background in it. I was working in it at the same time. So it was kind of a natural convergence was to kind of like have Jim be the guy who understands all the sequencers, who understands all the, the samplers, understands all that stuff and have him do all that stuff. And I kind of burned out on it at a point and I just felt like I wasn't really, I felt like I had become a technician and wasn't really like being a musician. And then ironically, I heard a guy, um, it was, uh, it was George Winston. Oh, I heard him. Go on, go on. I heard him play that. I heard him play a piece, a piano piece. I heard it on the radio and I didn't, it wasn't like, like, Hey, I want to do that. It was more along the lines of, Look at what he's able to do because he deliberately made a choice to like focus on that one thing. And if I stop doing all this stuff I'm doing and just take my guitar 
and try to get everything I can out of that guitar. What was interesting about it was I have a cousin who's a painter and he and I had a conversation about this years and years later and he, he calls it limiting. He's deciding to limit your palette. And he makes the point like sometimes when he's doing a painting, he makes a deliberate choice that he's only going to use certain colors or he's only going to allow himself self certain things on the palette. He's not going to go back and reload the palette because, oh, I need some more magenta or I need a different kind of purple or something like that. He's only going to use the, it's, it's what can I come up with, with the limitations that I'm, that I've actually kind of self-imposed on myself. And like you were saying, it, it, it becomes a way of channeling creativity and giving you a better opportunity to, to actually feel like you've accomplished something because you're pushing against something. And I think a lot of the problems with the, 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 the whole that Matthew's talking about this whole idea of not, not of being, of being beyond yourself and all that is that you, when, when you're beyond yourself, you have nothing to push against. There's, 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 you it, it doesn't matter what you accomplish because there's no resistance. There's nothing fighting back. Well, that's an interesting idea. Well, because there, there, there isn't any. You're, you're not anything. Right. You're just part of it. It's there's a stream and I'm in it. Or yeah, there's was, a stream and I am the stream. <laughs> sometimes that's nice to to think about that. You're you're a part of something and you can it can provide comfort when you just kind of go, well, I'm a leaf on the river. I'm just going to try to enjoy myself. The, the universe is going to do things to me and interact with me and I can either enjoy it or not. That's, you know, going back to Victor Frankl, like you have one, you have one choice, how to react. Everything else is out of your control. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes that's a nice thing, but it's also, it troubles me a little bit because well, you know what we're actually touching get, on you get too detached. You just go like, yeah, whatever, man. Right. That way I mean, lies nihilism. Well, I got really, I got really sort of scared about this when I got into Buddhism in my early or mid twenties or something. And I got really good at being detached Right. way too good because I, I got to a point where I could, I could see a famine and just go like, well, yeah, sometimes that happens when you don't have enough food for the people that were born, then yeah, some people are going to starve and looking at it from like, not one click away or one, you know, trying to elevate consciousness to a point where you're, you're seeing the world like God does or whatever. That's what the, the, Tower of Babel thing was, I think about is like, if you try to get that far up, you can, and you'll be a monster because you won't, you'll stop fighting for the little kid who needs food. Like you'll stop caring because that's life. Like God doesn't see anything as tragic because Mm -hmm. that's how shit goes. That's life. Like that's part of it. That's as much a part of it as, as anything nice happening. So if you try to see it from that view, it can get really dangerous because you can just go like, well, you know, you're bleeding out, uh, but that's what happens to a lot of people. Instead of being the one that rushes over and tries to save someone or bandage someone or feed someone or clothe someone. Well, and we, we, the, the, and the example you're giving is a great example because we have this problem in the modern world that we have, we are aware of way more suffering than we can possibly care about. Right. Yeah. You know, there's the, the, it, the, the, one of the neat things that happened to me in this past month is I spent some time out in the Eastern desert in Oregon and a lot of little towns. And by little, I mean towns under 6,000 people in them. And I immediately felt more at home, even though all my life I've lived in urban and suburban settings, but it, w- walking into a town with like, 300 people. I immediately felt more at home than I do in the neighborhood I live in every day. Well, of course, you you look like um, somebody who's probably just come back from panning for gold in the river. <laughs> probably um, came into town with a burrow packed with with no, a week, with a month's but, supplies. But 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 what what I liked about it. those settings. What I liked about those settings though was the fact that like 
it was a small enough it was a small enough community to get your head around. And we spent we spent a couple of we spent like four days in Prineville, Oregon. Um, and the family that we were there visiting, the one there was a friend of ours was getting married, and his father is a big man about Prineville. His father was a big executive in one of the corporations that had its headquarters in Prineville for years, and um, and so part of what we got to do is we got to see how they interact with the people in that little town. And I just was struck by like how much it reminded me of the way my grandparents were many, when I was a child back in, in the East coast, my grandfather basically ran a telephone company for two towns in upstate New York with a total of 600 customers. And every one of those customers knew my grandfather by name. He was the, he was the, he was it. He was, he owned it. He ran the lines. He operated, you know, his family operated the switchboard. Everything that there was to the, the, the telephone company was grandpa's business. And they all knew who he was and he knew who all they were. And they were all friends. And there was the, you know, there was the guy that he always carried an extra five days a month because he knew the guy got paid on the third and not on the first. And, you know, there was that kind of stuff going on. And there was that little dynamic there, but we're in this world where there's so much going on around us and we have these electronic devices that stream it all into our, it's like, there's, you know, there's huge raging forest fires taking place in California. I just heard 1400 homes have been lost. 36,000 people were displaced by the fires in Reading, Pennsylvania, or Reading, uh, California. Uh, and getting your head around that and realizing, like, that's that's 800 miles away. Uh, how much how much am I supposed to care about that? I mean, it's a tragedy. Don't get me wrong. And I feel bad for those people. And if there was something I could do that would help them, I would. But I don't know how I I don't know how much I can really honestly say I actually care. No. Well, that's nat- I, that's natural. If it's not the the further from your tribe it is, like you care about that more than the mudslides in Thailand, just because it's oh. a, it's even it's a step further from your tribe. You use the word tribe, and Jack and I have had conversations during the course of our friendship where we've talked about this concept of how the technology changes your idea of what tribe is. I think you, Jack, you'll remember at one point I said, you know, one of the, my, my idea of heaven is like all of the people I've become friends with over the years on the internet who I think actually get me and understand me and I can communicate with and I, and I actually feel like they're my friends are, are living right next to me because the problem I had at the time was I'm in New Jersey, Michael's in Tennessee, Jack's in, in Phoenix Russell's in Idaho, Aaron's in Portland. You know, there's, there's this community of people that I actually feel like that's the people I really want to be around. But they're spread out all over the place. They're on Usenet. They're, you know, they're, they're around the whole world, in fact. We had people at BHT who were, who I would consider to be part of that, who were, you know, in, in Europe and Great Britain during the time. And so it, it, it's re, it's interesting how that, that changes your perceptions too. And I think that that's part of the reason why in modern urban culture, we can get so insulated because it's possible to have that kind of a relationship with people. And there's a guy that lives basically across the hall from me in my apartment complex and he plays Call of Duty. And I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him. I know he plays Call of Duty because I hear him swearing when he loses. But I'm sure that the guys he plays Call of Duty with, he feels like they're really his friends. Oh, they are. But there, but 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 you don't get the community that that we used to get when we all lived together. When we all, you know, when when if I needed a screwdriver, I could just walk over to Jack's house and say, "Hey, can I borrow a screwdriver?" You know, that kind of a thing. And Jack would say, "Of course not, because you never return any of the tools." You, but I let you. <laughs> well, guys, um, this has been a wide ranging conversation. I make notes when we, t- when we do this. Let me just give you an idea of what we've talked about. Toxoplasmosis, badgers, ideas as divinities, Nassim Taleb's Fooled by Randomness, uh, Jonathan Haidt, rock concerts as churches, um, why rush concerts aren't like church, why your, <laughs> elephant, why your elephant is not you, uh, um, the, the relationship between limits and creativity, 
Victor Frankel, um, your choice is to react, and what communities are. That's a pretty good conversation for one day. Well, it's been a good hour. Um, I think we're going to bring this one to a, to a close. Well, thanks so, for having me on. On behalf of uh, Chet Manley and Max Danger, I'm uh, Jack Heald. I want to thank our guest, Jim Nicholson. Matthew. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jack. Until next time, this has been the Manly Danger Show. This has been the Manly Danger Show with Chet Manley and Max Danger. Special guest hosts, Matthew Thornton and Jack Heald. Tune in next week for another episode of the Manly Danger Show.